so glad that you are here today. We are beginning a brand new series this morning that I believe is going to be the most important eight weeks that we've ever had yet as a church. And we're doing a series called, Would the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? And we're going to begin this series today with a question. And, and let me ask you a question. What if, I, what if I told you today, what if I told you that the direction of your life and the choices that you will make and the legacy that you're going to leave behind and the eternity that you'll one day experience can all be determined by one answer to one question. Is there such a question that one answer to that question can determine that much? Or could there have ever been a single question at a single point in time that could have that much influence on the history of the world? I believe that there was. I believe the answer is yes. There was a question that was that important in the history of the world. I believe it was asked 2,000 years ago. And I believe the answer to that question then that we're going to pose today and try to answer for the next eight weeks demands an answer that will change the direction of our life, that will shape the choices that we make on a daily basis, that will end up determining the legacy that we leave behind, and they will develop the eternity that will answer. And that question is this, who is Jesus? I believe that one answer to that one question has the ability, if you really understand both the question and the answer, to change your life. Who is Jesus? Now, if you took your sermon notes out of the back of your bulletin, or if you haven't yet, go ahead and do that so you can follow along. You're going to find out Jesus is a pretty big deal. Not only globally and historically is Jesus a big deal, but, it, but in Scripture, Jesus is not just a big deal. He is the deal. As a matter of fact, the name of Jesus is mentioned 900 times in the New Testament. In the 27 books of Matthew through Revelation, Jesus is not just the main idea of Scripture. He is the only idea of New Testament Scripture. Jesus' name is mentioned over 60 times in the book of Acts, which tells us that the church that we now sit in that was established a little less than 2,000 years ago was established primarily based on the teaching and the understanding of who Jesus was. In every New Testament book, but the book of 3 John, which is only 14 verses, actually mentions the name of Jesus by name. And Third John mentions the name that is above every name. So it doesn't say the name Jesus, but it refers to Jesus. Jesus is a pretty big deal. Helen Keller is maybe one of the most respected Americans who's ever lived. She was the first deaf-blind human in America that graduated with a bachelor's degree from college. But she wasn't born deaf or blind. At 19 months, where she could see and hear, she contracted scarlet fever and ended up robbing her for the rest of her life of her sight and her hearing. Yet she became one of the most respected authors, speakers, educators, influencers in the history of the world. And when as a blind little girl someone finally told her about Jesus, her reaction to Jesus was, I knew about God before you told me, but I didn't know his name. Jesus is a pretty big deal. And the most important question I believe that any of us will ever answer is the question, who is Jesus? It was asked of a man named Matthew about 2,000 years ago in a little town called Caesarea Philippi, about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, right smack in the middle of today's Middle East. 
And I want to show you that narrative. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 16. If you didn't bring your Bibles today, but you'd like one to follow along, or you'd like one to have to take home, our ushers are going to come down the aisle. Just wave at them or make eye contact or kind of wink at them. Whatever you have to do to get their attention and let them know you want a Bible. We've given away more than 700 Bibles since our church began three years ago. And every Sunday morning, we will open the Bible, study the Bible, learn from the Bible. And we just want you to have one. So if you don't have one, put your name in this one that was just handed to you, take it home, um, and just start reading in this book that we're going to be in, Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament. If you don't know exactly where that is, there'll be a table of contents in the Bible just handed to you. Find New Testament, Matthew, page number, and then find chapter 16. And in Matthew chapter 16, we see the most important question ever asked to a pretty important group of people, the 12 disciples, and we see a really interesting conversation that not only guides their lives, but guides us spiritually unfold. And here's what Matthew chapter 16 verses 13 through 17 says. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? You should underline those words if you have your Bible with you today. Because this is a question you're going to have to answer. As a matter of fact, Scripture says that one day every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. One day you're going to have to give an answer to this question, who is Jesus? It'd be good to spend the rest of your life trying to figure out what that answer is before you're accountable for that answer one day in eternity. But what about you, Jesus asked? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. Who is Jesus? That's the question today. And really, it's, I believe, the most important question you'll ever have to answer in your life. And I believe the answer to this question really shapes your life, at least moving forward. And as we unpack what happened with the disciples in Matthew chapter 16, I believe the same thing that was going on in Matthew chapter 16 with these 12 men is going on with us today as we deliberate and we kind of figure out the answer to this question. When we ask the question, who is Jesus? You need to understand first, your future is going to be determined by how you answer this question. Your future is going to be determined by how you answer the question, who is Jesus? And listen, I don't know, I don't know your past. I can't know your past. You probably don't know much of my past. I don't know what burdens you came in today carrying. I don't know what heartbreak you have suffered in your life or what letdowns you've suffered in your life or what breakdowns you have suffered in your life. I can't possibly know what mistakes you've made, the consequences of those mistakes that you've paid. I cannot know what has happened in your past. But I can tell you today, although I'm not a fortune teller, I can tell you what will happen in your future. Your future will be determined by how you answer this question. And today you find yourself at kind of a crossroads sitting in Summit Lakes Middle School at 3500 Southwest Windermere Drive, Lee Summit, Missouri. Now, the disciples found themselves at a crossroad in Matthew 16, 13. Look at the first part of verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, this was... Maybe one of the greatest places in all of Israel, Caesarea Philippi. They're going to put a map on the screen. There's some information about Caesarea Philippi in your message notes. But Caesarea Philippi was a city that was named after Caesar. 
who technically as the head of Rome also governed Israel at the time, and Philip, who was Hebrew, he was Jewish, he was actually Herod the Great's son. Herod the Great was such a great man that his sons would never live up to him. He was such a great man that he didn't even pass on his throne to one of his sons, but three of his sons. He was such a great man that his sons didn't think they'd ever be remembered like their dad was remembered. So Philip named a town after himself so that people would remember him. And here we are 2,000 years later, we're talking about him. So it worked. There were actually two Caesareas in Israel, if you look at it. One was along the Mediterranean coast. When our church, who serves in Israel once a year, goes and serves in Israel, this is where we go the very first day that we wake up. It's one of the most beautiful places on planet Earth along the Mediterranean Sea. The Apostle Paul was held there in prison for a little while. And Herod built that name at Caesarea so that Caesar basically would give them some kind of water trade coming down from Rome. He basically said, look, we'll build a port and name it after you if you'll ship stuff to us on the water. So they named it Caesarea. Now they call it Caesarea Maritima to let them know it's the one on the sea. But then Philip way up north built Caesarea Philippi. And he named it after Caesar and himself so that he would always be remembered along with a Roman emperor. Now this place was originally a city called Peneus. And it was named after the god Pan. If you've studied mythology or other religions, you've probably heard of pantheism. It was named after Pan, who was allegedly born right near there. And it was kind of at this crossroads of life that the disciples were asked which kind of god they were going to follow. Now, Caesarea Philippi in Jesus' day was a resort town. It was at the base of Mount Hermon, a 9,000-foot mountain peak in northern Israel. It's almost always covered with snow. So we would picture this kind of as a Colorado-type getaway for Jews in the time of Jesus. This was Breckenridge, if you've ever been there, or Keystone, or Vail, or Aspen, if you go that direction. I mean, this was, this was the getaway from the heat of the summer to get out of the Middle Eastern desert and go to a place where it was only going to get up to 70 during the day. It might drop to 40s during the night. There was snow on top of the mountain. There were little lakes and streams that originated from Mount Hermon where you could kind of hang out. The headwaters of the Jordan River were there where you could just kind of lounge around. I mean, this was a place to go and relax. And the disciples were there with Jesus relaxing because they were at a crossroads in life. And after they left this place, they would travel straight south of Caesarea Philippi. They would hit their hometown of Capernaum north on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. They would travel jet down the Jordan River almost to the Dead Sea and then they would head west when they got to Jericho. They would enter into Jerusalem and Jesus would be hung on a cross. He would die, he would be buried and life would forever be different. So the disciples found themselves at a crossroads. They were able to kind of sit back, relax and process what the rest of their life was going to look like and you this morning have the opportunity to do that. You have the opportunity to take a deep breath and to kind of spiritually assess the past while looking towards the future and answering, who is Jesus going to be to me in my life? Whether you're 13 or 83 this morning, when you leave here, who is Jesus going to be in your life? You see, the disciples' immediate future and their long-term future would be based directly on their answer, but not just their answer, be based on the core belief to the answer of this question, who is Jesus? Their immediate future, their long-term future, would be based on their core belief of who Jesus was. So who do you say that Jesus is? That's the question Jesus asked his disciples. And it's interesting because as we look at the second point here and we see what Jesus is doing, we see that a correct view, number two, of Jesus, a correct view of Jesus changes everything. 
And you have to understand, if there's a correct view of something, there's an incorrect view of something. And we could take months, if not years, to study all the incorrect views and thoughts and theories of who Jesus is. Or we could just study Jesus so well that by knowing who he is, we can point out those that aren't fully scripturally backed Jesuses. You know, before God called me into ministry, I, I wanted to be a history and a government teacher. I love history. I love government. One of my favorite places on planet Earth is Washington, D.C. I love just going and being around the history of America, really all over the eastern seaboard. And when we were younger, we took a trip and we got to go um, visit the treasury. And part of visiting the treasury when I was in school is we got to see basically how counterfeit money is made and found out and processed. And we got to spend time with some Secret Service agents because at that time, I'm not sure how it is today, the Secret Service was actually in charge of getting counterfeit money off the streets. And they were showing us how counterfeit money was made and you know, they gave us like some counterfeit bills to look at and we had to circle like maybe what was wrong. And I remember one of my classmates asking the agent who was standing there give us an, giving us a tour, um, what, the, like, what, do they, what do they teach you to look for um, in a counterfeit? Like, how many, how many counterfeits do you have to study so you can know every counterfeit? And I'll never forget his answer. He said, we don't study all, any of the counterfeits. Because there's, there's, there's too many possibilities that there can be. He said, the only thing we do is study the real thing. And we know the real thing so well that the minute something is different, we know it's counterfeit. So we can, we can spend all kinds of time studying other religions and other Jesus and all that stuff. Or we can take eight weeks studying the real thing so well that the minute another type of Jesus creeps up, we say, no, 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 that's not the biblical Jesus that I know. And Jesus wanted his disciples to understand a correct view of him. Look at this, look at the second half of verse 13 and verse 14. Because Jesus, it says, he asked his disciples a question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now here's the key to understanding this text for the disciples. For our understanding of this text and for our understanding of Jesus. Here's the key. Jesus was not asking this question to try to gain information. He was asking this question to try to force contemplation. Like Jesus wasn't curious about what people were saying about him behind his back. Jesus didn't want to know what the disciples thought. Like we find out throughout the New Testament that like because Jesus was God, he knew things. They said he knew what people were thinking in certain situations. Jesus didn't ask the disciples, hey, what, what's the word on the street about me? Instead, he asked them a question so that he could teach them to think. And if you study Jewish history, you learn that rabbis who were religious teachers were trained to force thinking through questions not through lecture. So in the American system of universities, at least the ones that I went to, the professor gets up, he lectures, you take some notes, and then if you can regurgitate all that information, you prove that you know what he said. If you were to, in Jesus' day, go to university, usually a rabbi would never have more than 12 stu students, and, it, and all the teaching happened in the course of dialogue. It was all question and answer. Very rarely ever written tests. It was question and answer on how things would work. Let me show you how this worked in scripture because if you just go back and now read the life of Jesus, you'll see him doing this all the time. Asking questions rather than just telling people stuff. So the Pharisees came up to Jesus one time and they said, um, are, you, are you from God or are you not from God? 
Now, do you think Jesus knew the answer to that question, yes or no? Yes, but he didn't answer the question. He said, I don't know. John the Baptist, was he from God or was he not from God? He asked them a question to make them think. And what he was trying to get them to think was, if you just pay attention, clearly you're living in a supernatural season. He could have just answered their question, but he wanted them to think. Later, a group would come to him. He healed a guy's hand on the Sabbath that had been withered. And they came to him and they said, tell us, is it lawful to heal a man on the Sabbath? Now, do you think Jesus knew the answer to that question, yes or no? Yeah, but he didn't answer the question with an answer. He answered it with a question. He said, I don't know. If one of your animals falls in the well on the Sabbath, will you get him out? He wanted him to think. Basically, he was saying to them, listen, dummy, of course you can help someone on the Sabbath. But he didn't say that. I mean, he said that, but he, he, wanted, he wanted them to understand that. Later, someone would come to Jesus and they would say, hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar or should we not pay taxes to Caesar? Do you think Jesus knew the answer to that question, yes or no? Yes, of course he did. But he didn't answer that question with an answer. He answered it with a question. He said, well, whose face is on the coin? See, he wanted them to think. See, rabbinical teaching is teaching people to think, not just know the answer. I fear that for too long the church has gotten up and just said, here's who Jesus is. Don't ask any questions. Memorize this, learn this, and then, then go do what I, what I tell you and give in the offering at the end, please. Like, that's the way we have shaped the narrative about Jesus. But Jesus said, I want, you to, I want you to think about maybe inadequate views of who I am. It's interesting, as the disciples wrestled through some popular thought about Jesus, some answers came up. They said, well, man, some people think you're like John the Baptist. Who was John the Baptist? John the Baptist was this great teacher who grew the hearts of the people back towards God. People saw John the Baptist get up on the shores of the Jordan River, and man, he'd just rip it spiritually and scripturally. And I mean, he just convicted people to be closer to God. And they said, you know, a lot of people look at you and they see in you, John, and like a lot of people think you're an incredible teacher, and Jesus was. So some people think you're like Elijah. Elijah would have been the most supernaturally gifted man that the Israelites had ever known about from the Hebrew Bible or what we call the Old Testament. Elijah was a great miracle worker who truly possessed God's supernatural touch on his life. Like Elijah performed miracles. Elijah brought people back from the dead. Elijah created food out of nothing. And they saw Jesus doing that. And they said, man, he must be Elijah. If you know the, the narrative of Elijah well, he got kind of taken up in a whirlwind to heaven. They never saw him come down. And they, maybe he's just been floating around for 2,000 years. Bang, here he is. Like he's doing the same stuff. A lot of people, they wonder if you're Elijah. But you're doing all this crazy supernatural stuff. So some people think you're like Jeremiah. Israelites had a long line of great prophets that we have recorded in Scripture. But Jeremiah specifically was a prophet who taught the people of Israel to have hope in the midst of difficulty. Elijah was a prophet who promised new blessings for their future. So they heard Jesus saying stuff like, My yoke is easy and my burden is light and I'm bringing you a new teaching and you can't put new stuff in old stuff. And they heard Jesus offering hope in the midst of their difficult life. And blessings for their unknown future. They said, man, he sounds, he sounds a lot like Jeremiah. But these, while accurate, don't tell the whole story. I told the first service about a guy that you all know who grew up in North Carolina, dirt broke. He made something of himself. He, he rose to extreme fame and then his dad was kind of brutally murdered. And he's dropped off the face of the earth for three or four years. And he went and every venture he tried to do failed. And then slowly he rebuilt his life and got back to the top. Now those are all facts of a story that you know. The man's name is Michael Jordan. 
But facts don't give you the full picture. And knowing that Jesus can teach and perform miracles and that he promises hope in the midst of difficult, like that is not the full picture of who Jesus is to you and to me and to our world. And here's the reality. Here's the fact. Here's where we get stuck. You and I are only going to follow Jesus to the degree in which we understand his place in our lives. And seeing Jesus as a great teacher is great when we need some direction. When we're searching for God, what do you want me to do? And God, how do I handle this? When, when we really need some divine direction, seeing Jesus as a teacher is great. But most days we don't need divine direction. We just want to get through the day. So it allows us to have a Jesus that we only look for when we need some direction. Seeing a Jesus who works miracles is awesome when we need one. And you and I often turn to him when something goes wrong, when there's a health crisis, when there's a car accident, when we lose our job, then we need Elijah. Like we need Jesus to supernaturally step in and do something. When our kid's off the rails, when we're losing our marriage, we need Jesus to step in and be a miracle worker. But we don't need that most of the time. So most of the time we... We don't need Jesus. We kind of keep him where we need him. And seeing Jesus as a prophet who gives hope and blessing in the midst of difficulty is great when you're living in the midst of difficulty, but we don't spend our whole lives in the midst of difficulty. So what we see is when we have a view of Jesus that's less than who Jesus really is, we follow Jesus less than we're really supposed to follow Jesus. And it was important to Jesus that the disciples wrestle through these options and see the inadequacies of a less than complete understanding of who he really was. Jesus wasn't afraid of that. He said, talk through it, think through it. Who do people say that I am? How's that work? What does that leave out? What if you put all three of them together? Is it enough then? And Jesus, it was important to Jesus that the disciples really answer these hard questions in their life. Who is Jesus to me? It was also important to Jesus that the disciples decide for themselves who he was and not base their decision on the opinions of others. Because I can't tell you how many men have said yes to Jesus because they wanted to say yes to a woman that they wanted to marry. They weren't really saying yes to Jesus. I can't tell you how many young gals I've met who said yes to Jesus because they wanted to marry a guy who loved Jesus. And they said, if Jesus comes with you, then I guess I'll take him too. I can't tell you how many people sit in churches on Sunday morning because their granddad sat in church and their dad sat in church and there's no Rolls and there's no NASCAR and there's no Chiefs today, so it's Sunday, so I guess you, you just come to church. And there's, there's this kind of loose connection to Jesus, but it's never been one you've thought through. It's never been one you've decided on. It's never been you saying, at all cost, no matter how it impacts my life, I, I choose Jesus. And Jesus said, I want you to think through this for you and I want you to do this for you. Because a complete understanding of Jesus is what it takes to have a complete transformation of your life. That's why Jesus came back and asked the question in verse 15. After he asked his disciples, who, who do people say? And they started talking through. Jesus really zoned in. He said, but what about you? What about you? I mean, if you have your Bible open, I, I pray you'll cross out the word you. You won't go to hell if you cross out a word in the Bible, I promise. Cross out the word you and write me. What about me? This is the question you have to ask yourself as you move forward. What about me? What do I say about Jesus? 
Verse 15, what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, why? Because he always did. He was a kid in class, had all the answers. He always spoke first. Sometimes he was right, sometimes he was wrong, but he was always speaking first. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, and you're the son of the living God. This Messiah word is a big word that doesn't have full understanding in most of our hearts. You see, the Messiah is actually a Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew term for Savior. If you and I spoke Hebrew, we would Yeshua Mashiach is how they say it when you go over there. Jesus Messiah. You and I often refer to Jesus as Jesus Christ. Those are Greek words. Christ is the Greek term for Savior. But here's where it kind of, kind of gets messed up. Because the Hebrews understood what Savior meant. The Greeks, probably a little less so. But their language was universal, so we learned it. But this English word Savior, I'll be honest with you. It's really an inadequate English term for the biblical understanding of the Messiah. Just knowing that Jesus is your Savior really doesn't introduce you to all that Jesus is to you. Because what we're going to learn in the next seven weeks is that when we really have a complete biblical understanding of who Jesus is, it changes everything. It changes the direction of our life. It impacts the choices that we make and when we make them. It determines the legacy that we want to leave for our kids and our grandkids and our communities and our families and our churches and our friends. And it certainly impacts our eternity. As a matter of fact, we're going to learn if Jesus is really the Messiah, then we can trust him with every aspect of our life, with every aspect of our future, and with every aspect of our eternity. If Jesus is really the Messiah, and we have trusted Him with our life, there literally is nothing else to worry about on planet Earth. If we really understand who Jesus is. Now, it took the disciples two and a half years to get to this point. And it took them a lot of conversations, took them a lot of questions, and they would continue to wrestle with this for the next seven months. Like the week before Jesus died, they would publicly hail him as king of the Jews. They'd celebrate him on Palm Sunday, and then four days later on Thursday night, they'd all deny him and run away. I mean, it took them a little while. Then a few days later, they would literally hide from his ghost because it freaked him out is what they thought. After he had resurrected, they locked themselves in a room, and they wouldn't even let him in the door. He had to pass through the walls to come and talk to him. However in the world, that happened. I mean, these disciples who were trying to understand who Jesus was, it took them a while. And even after that, it took them a little while. But when we see the disciples in the book of Acts that started the church and that gave their entire life to Jesus, they're different than the people we see in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the story of Jesus' life. Knowing who Jesus was changed them forever. On January 11th of next year, we'll start 52 weeks of 2015 at our church. And we're committing 40 of the 52 weeks next year to preach through the book of Acts and teach through the book of Acts, one chapter at a time, one narrative at a time, because we want to see what happens when God's church just explodes with life and vision and mission. It's going to be great. I love the book of Acts. It's going to be an unbelievable year as we study the book of Acts. But what we're going to find in there is that knowing who Jesus was, it changed these men, and they learned to trust him with every aspect of their life, their future, and their eternity. How, how did they get there? Look at verse 17. 
Because you need to understand this morning what's happening in your life spiritually. Because some of you are not here by chance. Some of you, listen to me, I believe this with all my heart, as crazy as it sounds. Some of you, God brought you here today. Now, he had a friend invite you, or he had a spouse invite you, or someone put a, a note card in your hand, or, or you got a flyer in the mail. But all of those things, God used those things because God wanted you to be here today. Why? Look at verse 17. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. I want you to underline the words in that verse, revealed to you, and then skip a few words and underline, by my Father in heaven. Revealed to you, by my Father in heaven. Revealed to you, by my Father in heaven. You know what that tells me? It tells me that it's God. It's God who wants to give you such a deep understanding of who Jesus is that it changes everything about your life. It's not me. It's not your spouse. It's not your friend. Although we we may all be in this thing together to try to help you understand who Jesus is. Ultimately, God wants you to understand who Jesus is because he knows by understanding that it could change everything about your life. Now, how did he do that with his disciples? God did that with the disciples over a period of three years by one, just let them have a relationship with Jesus. They just got to be around him and see who he was and how he worked and what he did. And then he gave them life experience with Jesus. For three years, they got to listen to him teach and talk. And they began to understand things the way that he wanted them to understand things. They got to watch as he did ministry. They got to watch how he treated his family members who he often dialogue with. He got to watch how he treated his friends, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and how he treated people who were hurting. How he treated people who were self-righteous, and he thought hurting the cause. They got to be in dialogue with him and asking questions, say, why'd you do that, and how does this work, and what do we do here? They got to watch him heal people. They said, man, this guy is attracted to people who are hurting, and he has the ability to help them. They got to watch him do miracles. They saw his power over nature. They were in a boat one time when it was storming and he told the storm to go away and it did. You know how many times I've wanted to do that on a golf course and it hasn't worked? Like, you know, I've got like a couple holes left and the storm closed up and I'm like, peace be still. It's never worked for me once. I've tried it a couple times, I promise. Like, Lord told me if I had faith of a mustard seed, I guess I didn't that day. I was like, stop. And then I ran away and got out of the rain. Jesus showed him that he had power over death. His friend Lazarus died. And he went and he's like, don't be dead anymore. And Lazarus is like, okay. And he stood back up and, it was, and he came back to life. That's incredible. They watched his personal resurrection. They saw him die. They saw him buried. And then he was alive again. They saw Jesus in a way that radically changed their life. And most of us say, man, if I could see Jesus in that way, I'd follow him too. No, you wouldn't. And I wouldn't either. Because these 12 men, they all had to quit their jobs for three years to see Jesus like this. They had to leave their family for three years. Every day for three years to see Jesus like this. Sometimes they wake up in the morning and say, hey, Jesus, where are we going to eat today? And he's like, I don't know, don't worry about it. For about a thousand days they lived like that. They ended up arrested because they spent time with Jesus. Had people say bad things about him because they spent time with Jesus. Ended up running from the authority sometimes because they spent time with Jesus. Maybe your faith is stronger than mine. But of every person in this congregation, I intimately know. I don't know that there's one that would quit their job 
and leave their families for three years to really get to know Jesus. Thankfully, he's not asked us to do that. The way that God reveals himself to us is through his word. He allows us to have this copy of the Bible, 66 books, Genesis through Revelation, that we can study, that we can read, that we can learn, that we can ask questions of, that we can debate, that we can discuss. And he gives us our life experience with Jesus to figure out who Jesus is. But I love how the word of God works because the word of God is always trying to help us understand the plan of God. And there was an unwritten story about Jesus that until it was written, left out kind of like Paul Harvey's part. You know, the, like the rest of the story. Because three men wrote stories about Jesus. Their names were Matthew, Mark, Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And for a quarter century, the world had three biographies of Jesus. The, the church fathers would later rename them the Gospels, which meant good news. They'd say these books are officially now known as the Gospels. But they were just biographies. They were just... Here, I knew Jesus, here's my account of life with Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all wrote one. And for about 25 years, that's all the world had. But the last living disciple, his name was John. And John, after a quarter century of hearing all that there was to hear about Jesus, said, there's some, there's some things you left out. There's some things you need to know. So John decided to write, his biography of Jesus, the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. And in the gospel of John, 90% of what John wrote is not found anywhere else in Matthew, Mark, or Luke because he was writing the rest of the story. And at the end of his book, he said, let me tell you why I wrote my version of the story. In John 20, 31, he said, all this is written so that you can believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing that, you might have life in his name. He went right back to Caesarea Philippi and said, God, how can I help them know you like I know you? And he said, you know, I'll just write down everything I know. And it's within the history of the book of John that we hear what Jesus has to say about himself. John lists or writes his book around a series of seven, seven miracles that Jesus did. Seven teaching discourses that Jesus gave. But most importantly... Seven statements that Jesus made about himself. The rest of the story. Seven things that Jesus wants us to know about him so we can know Jesus like John did so that it can change everything about our life. And what does Jesus say about himself that we'll study the next seven weeks? Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Next Sunday as a church, we'll take communion together as we focus on this part of who Jesus is. Jesus said he was the light of the world. That he was the gate. That he's a good shepherd. That he's the resurrection and the life. That he's the way, the truth, and the life. That he's the vine. All these things give us a piece of who Jesus is. That shapes every day of the rest of our life. And man, as a pastor, I, I both love and hate teaching in series over multiple Sundays. One, I love it because you can never say enough in one message. Two, I hate it because no one is ever here for the entire series. So I got to tell you in the midst of your busy life, if you can be here on Sunday, be here. If you can't be here on Sunday, podcast it. Watch it online. Because these next seven weeks of who Jesus is are the most important things any of us can ever learn. Because when we understand Jesus for who he really is, it has the ability to direct our future, to shape our choices, to determine our legacy, and one day to determine our eternity. We pray with me?